I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Binks, you know how I love it that you give me a gateway to the outdoors and to appreciate nature that's just on our doorstep. But for some people, they don't get that connection. And this is why we're about to jump on Zoom and talk to Henry Mance, who's written an amazing book called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, and how we can all look to readdress this imbalance. Henry, welcome to A Dog's Life. Hi, thanks for having me. You're um, the chief features editor at the Financial Times and author of a simply incredible book called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, which could be looked at as a personal quest of yours. Yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, I'm really glad that the book sort of brings together various strands of my life. And I think lots of people spend their lives sort of having different interactions with animals. And I was the same. I had a, you know, a dog when I was young. I went to the zoo and 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 then I've seen lots of wonderful animals in the wild, puffins, orangutans. And more recently, I've come to think about, well, what's my impact on all those animals? You know, am I leaving a positive mark? And also particularly having kids, seeing them grow up with pictures and toys um, and starting to think, well, hold on, what kind of a world do I want them to inherit? And how do I want them to see animals? And because they're they're growing up to expect animals to be out there and to be treated well. And actually, I know that's not the reality. So can I can I find some answers about whether that's even possible? Well, yes. And it's a, a, a brilliant book. Um, I mean, you start by really questioning the nature of love and whether as humans we've uh, we don't really understand truly what it means. Iris Murdoch, someone I studied a lot, I love Iris Murdoch, um, highlights this. And you've used Iris Murdoch's theory to transfer where we're going wrong, really, as people. Yeah, I mean, I started with the idea of love because it's something that people almost say like a nervous tick. You know, I love animals. I'm an animal lover. And, you know, th- uh, this week uh, or a few days ago, the British government announced a Um, an animal welfare action plan and it said we are a nation of animal lovers and you know I've seen clips of Jose Mourinho the football manager say say something about animals and then say oh I love animals you know and people are really quick to use this this language around love and I sort of uh, got thinking about well what does what does love mean what does this mean and I think for a lot of people and for me certainly when I was younger love meant finding animals beautiful finding you know the patterns on a jaguar or the flight path of an eagle finding that something you know really that i could watch for for a long time and think those colors i can't find in you know in in the human world um and yet uh actually love means something more than just appreciating beauty because that, that's a sort of pleasure to us and i think what iris murdoch really well expressed is you know this, this realization that there is another um you know, another individual, another experience of the world, and how do we how do we then use um, uh, our emotion, but also use use our, our our sort of concentration on 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 maybe the exterior beauty to sort of think about that inner world. So, you know, if if the colours of an orangutan or a jaguar are beautiful, can we also think about how the mind of that orangutan or that jaguar is working, and how we can therefore see the world through their eyes? And so, I think emotion you know it 
it does mean that we don't love all animals equally. You know, snakes will, will probably never have the same attention that elephants do. Um, but I think the emotional connection um, with the animal world can, can lead us to change our behavior and lead us to, um, to rethink how we live. Well, yes, well, I really hope so, because what seems to have happened, Henry, is that we've made a bit of a big mess of it, really. I mean, you spent a lot of time in Colombia, which I learned through the book. South America is somewhere I've never been. I'd love to go, actually. I've done Africa and uh, East Africa and India and learned a lot, obviously, culturally there. Indeed, how they obviously treat their animals, perhaps not as well as we do here, but that's down to poverty rather than conscious decisions. And Darwin actually even said that the main difference between us and all other animals was our consciousness and our minds. And we haven't really been using those to best effect. I mean, I think the world we've created is a is a, is a, a sort of sad one, a, a missed opportunity, given how much we, we love animals. I mean, you know, and the two sort of main drivers, I think, are, you know, the, far, the way we farm and particularly the intensification of agriculture, you know, chickens cooped up in shed, but also dairy cows uh, cooped up in shed, separated from their calves, etc. And then also this, this continual expansion of um, human activity, which means that biodiversity is, is being sort of wiped out a, across the planet. And um, I think both the, you know, it's not just species going extinct, it's species having smaller and smaller ranges. I mean, you know, lions, you know, probably exist on 10% or less of their historic range. And, you know, they're, they're constantly coming into, uh, or rubbing up against human settlements because we, we haven't found the ways of, of guaranteeing those spaces. I think for me, you mentioned Colombia, which is somewhere um, I lived. It's, you know, a wonderful country. It's got these um, amazing, uh, amazing biodiversity because it's got the Pacific coast, the Atlantic coast. It's got the, the Amazon basin, the Orinoco basin and the Andes mountains. So you have all these different niches for, for animals, it's got the most bird species of anywhere in the world. Um, and for many years, it's had a, a, a conflict around, um, well, fueled by the drugs industry. And there was, you know, there was one very simple reading of that, which was, oh, if we get rid of the drugs industry, then we can protect, you know, the Amazon, protect the, uh, the, the wonderful wild spaces we have and, and, and find more of a role for anim uh, animals. And of course, the drugs industry does terrible things. You know, it, it spills chemicals from uh, cocaine laboratories in the jungle. It, you know, blew up oil pipelines as part of a, a war against the government, etc. And yet... Um, at the same time, there's no model of progress which isn't that much better. I mean, when peace came to Colombia and there was a peace deal in 2016, what happened was that suddenly all these lands which had been effectively kept off limits and people hadn't gone and cut, cut down the forests, well, they started you know, doing exactly that and actually it made deforestation worse in parts of Colombia. And people went in, chopped down the forests, put cows on there, effectively claiming the land. And it showed to me that you know we're not, the good guys, in a way, we, we haven't found a model that really is sustainable and that works. And, you know, I'm certainly not saying that the, the gorillas in Colombia are the good guys, but I'm, I'm saying that, you know, what we've got to do is find, find a better way of living, a better way of balancing and not just relentlessly expand um, human presence. Yes, uh, totally. Well, you know, so is the answer that we all stop eating meat so that at least the Amazon isn't being chopped down to graze cows? I mean, I think in a, you know, it, it, it pains me to say it so simply, uh, Anna, but yes, I mean, really, um, a lot of our problems come down to, to meat. And, you know, when I was writing this book, I thought, 
you know, there are so many issues to bring in. You could talk about plastics, pollution, pesticide use, etc. Um, and there are loads of things that we could do better, you know, how we recycle the, you know, the, the elements of an electric car, etc, etc, etc. But focus on what the, the most important things you can do. Don't get lost in, in a thousand things, which will be very difficult to keep your attention on. The fact is, we use huge amounts of our land, 75% of our um, cultivated land um, for livestock. And that's growing uh, food that we give to animals, but it's also giving the animals uh, space to graze. And that does, that's not an efficient way of doing it. It represents less than 20% of our calories, less than 40% of our protein. We don't need to eat meat, most of us. I mean, there, is, there are some possible uh, uh, exceptions, and I, I certainly wouldn't um, uh, exclude it in all cases. But most people, especially in, in Europe and North America, could give up um, animal products. And the benefits would be enormous um, in terms of our carbon emissions, but also in terms of uh, our land use. And we suddenly, we, we think of, you know, our land as full. We think of Britain as full of people or Europe as full of people. Actually, the reality is it's full of livestock. And, you know, suddenly we will have more space for houses, but also for nature. And I, I, I think it's a really simple solution um, which uh, we should pioneer in countries like Britain because, you know, we um, are in a position to move to a, um, to a very different diet. And we're going to have to anyway, is all the recommendations of uh, climate change bodies. Yeah, I don't disagree that humans would be healthier actually eating a vegan diet. But in your book, what I have to talk about, Henry, you actually spent a lot of time in what the polite word is an abattoir, but the real word is a slaughterhouse. And then you also worked on a pig farm, you know, as part of your research, really, or I guess to put yourself so in front of it, that your writing is so graphic. I found those sections really hard, really hard. I turned the pages so hard. Here we go. Another onslaught is coming, Henry. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I tried to keep it to a sort of narrow bit at the, at the start. And I, I guess what I wanted to do was to say, I know animals because we have a cat and we had a dog and we have birds uh, in the garden. And these are the animals that I think are part of my life. But what we've done quite successfully over the past 200 years is to push our impact on the natural world out to places we don't see it. So that's certainly true of, um, of farms, but, um, of uh, slaughterhouses, etc. And so I thought really I should just see it with my own eyes and to understand and to see whether that where that got me in terms of rethinking how I, I live. And I think, um, you know, one of the things about slaughterhouses is that, that I found is that, you know, anyone can work in one. You know, I, I just called up and I said, look, I, I'm interested in working. And they were like, well, come down. And I thought, well, I'll come down and I'll have a chat and interview. And he was like, no, no, you better just try it. And he gave me a, a boots and a jacket and I was sort of there on the production line. And yeah, there, there were some graphic details in there, but it, it was also sort of faintly, in a way comic that you know because really nobody wants to work at this nobody really wants to face up to what the reality of meat involves i mean in britain uh, around two uh, two thirds of people who work in um, the uh, meat pr uh, production industry are um, eu nationals i.e um, not uh, immigrants and and the sort of the industry explains this one of the ways it, it says is that all school leavers in britain don't know it's an option and that's hilarious because you know 95 percent of people in, in britain eat meat 
And so yeah. how can people not know that it's an option to work in the meat production? Well, that's because we've, we've pushed it to the back of our minds. Yeah, and, and, and Henry, you know, you've got all the flashy packaging and the, the super marketing words when you're, you're buying meats and you really do believe that this piggy, you know, had a good life. I mean, I stopped eating pork after I watched uh, Babe. You remember that film? Yeah, of course. That So now I must say I have now decided to give up dairy. I don't eat meat already, but the figures, you know, in terms of you know, the carbon footprint on the dairy industry did actually shock me in, in the book, Henry. I mean, what is it that a kilo of cheese... What was the carbon footprint of a kilo of cheese again, Henry? Oh, you were, you were testing me a bit, but, but I mean, it's certainly <laughs> worth it. Um, I can give you the, the land use, just briefly. So 50 grams of protein, which is what you, uh, you know, the recommended intake a day uh, of protein, uh, 50 grams of protein for, for a normal adult. Um, well, if you, if you do that with peas, you need less than two square meters of, of, of land. If you do it with cheese, you need 10 times that. And then beef, which is, you know, as everybody knows, the least efficient uh, meat out there is is 50 times um, and so you're really talking about a, a, a sort of um, having to expand having to find uh, the more cheese we eat the more we have to uh, keep um, expanding away from uh, well into into forests and not just in the EU I mean you know often we're, we're buying uh, food for animals from abroad and that means that we're, we're kind of exporting the deforestation. And yes, I mean, cheese comes from ruminants who do emit a lot of uh, carbon and methane. And uh, I'm afraid that's the, that's the reality. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's, I would always say to people around, and I think it's, it's great to hear you um, uh, say that about veganism. For me, vegetarianism is a, you know, is a halfway house. You think it, you think it solves the problem because you're not eating flesh directly, but actually, you know, it's still animal farming. It's still intensive animal farming in many cases. But I would always say to people, you know, take a take a small steps. For me, it was it was a series of small steps that I cut down on fish first because I felt that overfishing was really bad. And then, you know, I found out more about intensive agriculture, so I gave up meat. And then I rethought, well, actually, look, dairy and eggs are actually some of the um, uh, you know, least defensible ways of producing protein. So then I went vegan and, you know, I, um, I haven't looked back and I think it's a, it's a, you, you'd be surprised about how, how easy it is. Um, but I think even if, you know, it's, it's much better to, to do what you can and maybe make the odd, odd exception than to feel like it's a, it's an all or nothing um, uh, sort of um, conversion that you have to make. I mean, would ultimately what, what I'm trying to do and what I think other people try and do is to change the system and to change a world in which, you know, there isn't much, um, there isn't really much uh, future for a lot of our, our wildlife. And I think so. I think we're trying to reach out and to, to change people's minds and rather than become like a, a group of people who are who are just trying to act perfectly themselves. No, it's about having conversations and, and, and changing society. Yeah, we're really changing society. So, I mean, moving on to, you know, pet because according to some research the meat that pets consume is releases the same amount of emissions as the aviation industry which you know is quite a difficult argument to come back on when I defend the position that dogs and cats are actually carnivores I know there was a piece of research in 2013 that did uh, postulate that dogs could be omnivores however it was a Swedish study and it didn't actually compare the exact amount of amylase that humans produce compared to the amylase genes which are very scant in a dog and the fact that a wolf has no amylase at all so to feed a dog a vegan 
I do believe is nothing less than unethical, Henry. Similarly with a cat, I mean, a cat, they would both, you know, their health would not be as you might like it through their life, you know, their coat would be lackluster, they would have digestive problems because they simply cannot absorb protein from plants. You know, they are carnivores, they're on four feet, their digestive tract is small, they only produce a small amount of amylase in the pancreas, we produce amylase in our saliva, blah, 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 but we don't want to go into the nitty gritty of nutrition. But you see, for me, if every human became a vegan, then we would be allowed, or it, it would be more ethical for the planet to feed dogs and cats as nature intended because of the benefits our pets bring us. I know you've got a cat that you love very much. Yeah, I think I think you've put that really nicely. And I'm glad that you uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up because yeah, I, I mean, although I'm vegan, my cat is is not vegan and has recently moved on to you know a, a, well certainly a, a meatier diet because of um her liver and so i'm sort of now confronted more with the smells of uh, of meat and i think you know my book's called how to love animals in a human shaped world and i think the human shaped bit is because we can't pretend that we're not here you know on earth we can't pretend that the whole world is you know some pristine rainforest i mean it hasn't been for uh, millennia or you know no part of the world is untouched by us and we have to admit that we're always going to have a footprint on on this planet and I think the way the way to reconcile that is to say well look we just need to find a balance and we need to say yeah if we're going to have things like pets and also I mean animal testing is another thing which you know animal research yeah there are huge benefits as people from who have taken the coronavirus vaccine um, will be able to attest and it's a with pets, I think they bring joy to a huge number of people that they're here anyway. I mean, you couldn't click your fingers and get rid of pets in any case, even if you wanted to. And so I think it's about saying, well, look, I can, you know, using your pet to really get in touch with the natural world. And I think, you know, look at look at the emotions and the meaning of life that a dog or a cat um, has and think, wow, you know, that's out there in the world. And, you know, all the time, you know, whether it's foxes or crows or parrots or or whoever there's there you know there are intelligent beings out there making decisions um and you know finding pleasure finding pain etc in, in the world and so can we find space for them can we can we remember that we're not the only people on the planet so i think i think pets are an opportunity and you know even if they they involve some footprint in terms of me they also um they also can inspire us to think more about you know what how much nature means to us and how much we could do for nature absolutely but I must admit your book is quite witty in places Henry I did laugh out loud so I'm on the last section which is about domestic pets and you say all of this brilliantly and then you just drop in and say but it, it seems we haven't done this i.e look at our pets in the context of the bigger world and we've actually fallen off the life raft I did giggle because it seems actually that We've become very, very um, absorbed in the ownership of particularly dogs. Dogs now have to have Instagram accounts. They have to have wardrobes and they have to have so many gadgets, which I deem pretty useless, most of them actually. And a lot of those things are made in China and then they're brought over. We're talking air miles and plastic. And, you know, like you said, the complexities of the damage of capitalism, basically, and the fact that we're so eager to be brainwashed by people is also the nub of this do you think yeah I think in a way and yeah, you put it nicely I mean in a way we kind of repeat some of the failures we um you know we make in uh, with our own lives in, in terms of thinking that you know uh, uh, 
yeah whatever bit of plastic can can cheer us up or um and we we think we extend that to our pets lives and think you know they must enjoy having x birthday present which really isn't about them it's about us and i think it goes back to that iris murdoch idea or you know that, that thinking about well what is love is it kind of enjoying the outside of animals is it is it sort of us imposing really our desires onto them or is it trying to understand their you know their needs as an individual and their their own experience and i think you know in many cases dogs and cats don't really want uh, uh, some of the junk that we buy for them they want us to um be good companions and then also to you know um to find space for them whether it's by ensuring they have um stimulation or you know i like the idea that if you take a dog for a walk then the dog has some ability to choose where that walk goes because they're animals with preferences and and you know it makes me sad when i see people dragging their dogs around on the end of a lead just because they want to get that that walk done within 10 minutes and then get back to their emails i think i think we need to be you know understanding about what dogs actually want and whether you know company is another thing that you know is so important to some of these animals and that we really ration it and we really say you know you're going to see another dog for a very limited amount of time and that, i think that must that must be frustrating for them and um and so i i think you're right that i'll i'll, I'll worship for dogs and i went to this place called Cor- this event called corgi con in san francisco which was a sort of celebration of corgis but really it was for the it was for the owners um and so you had a thousand corgis on a beach which you know is pretty confusing for corgis who who have very short legs um uh but you know i i think all that you know it's it's all it's all okay but we can do much better we can we can if we really love pets then let's think about what they what they need and i know lots of people do and lots of people are brilliant uh with their pets yeah no totally and i think there's just been a bit of a need to bring a dog into your life through the pandemic which is why i really do feel your book is so timely there are lots of people out there right now thinking why on earth did i bring a dog into my life you know because but they need to just realize that they're not able at this point in time to care for one appropriately i think but you know it it also segues to the fact you know we've been cooped up for a year do you think this might have changed people's opinions of zoos for example you know when they next go to London Zoo which is a a, a great place it is educational you know it is a tourist attraction though I do feel for the tigers in there you know they're they're not in a big enough space Henry I mean it's lovely and everything and I'm sure they cared for extremely well but it does upset me and and I think lockdown's probably given us the biggest perspective on zoos ever I think I, you're you're really right, Anna. And I'm someone who wants to like zoos because you know I, I find all these animals amazing, and you know the, the chance to see them is brilliant. But just as I grew older, I found them sort of uh, sadder places to be. I just wondered why they weren't inspiring me in the way that um, the way that they used to. And I, I um, and I was grappling around for a metaphor. And so, you know, obviously some animal activists would call them prisons and would talk about you know them in, in very bleak terms and that didn't seem quite right because you know keepers are very loving towards animals and they, they have good intentions and there are certain nice things about zoos but lockdown really gave me a perspective and gave me a metaphor for understanding what a zoo is it's a place where your your needs are met so you you know the food that you need is there and you're not in danger of um being set upon by a predator etc but your your life is stripped of the choice it's stripped of the excitement and so you can't choose who you socialize with um and you certainly can't go out and sort of you know engage with the environment in an exciting way 
and I, I, so I, I think that um, the things you don't see in a zoo, obviously, are are animals running, animals exploring. You know, you sort of, if you look at the giraffes in in London Zoo, which you can see from the road, they're kind of a bit motionless and a, a bit sad when they're out. You know, there aren't aren't many trees. A lot of enclosures for primates or other animals just have very little vegetation. With tigers, they've tried to. Some good zoos have tried to make spaces where the tigers can can hide away and so they can choose whether they're on show or not but of course you know that changes the spectacle and I think ultimately over the next 10-20 years we'll move to a place where it's only really considered right to keep these large animals in much bigger enclosures and not in the centre of cities. Now it is interesting about the um, new animal welfare sentience bill that was proposed as part of a much bigger drive for animal welfare in this country only last week Henry. Um, Do you think this is going to help now you know in terms of slaughterhouses and the way we you know will it stop pigs being gassed but with carbon monoxide for example whilst dogs are sleeping in our bed it just seems kind of mad but dogs are sentient beings as well but the law hasn't credited them with that until perhaps last Thursday. Yeah I think this is um, for me it's a statement of intent you know and animal sentience I mean it's I'm sure anyone listening to this and will not be at all, you know, it seems so obvious that dogs can, uh, you know, feel things and that pigs can feel things. And, you know, um, you know, Darwin knew this 150 years ago and, you know, pet owners have known it for years um, and farmers have known it. You know, it's, uh, you know, and even even I think well before Darwin, people people, even though they said, well, let's do this experiment on a, on a dog or, or whatever. There are examples where people, you know, tried to disregard the feelings of animals and felt that they couldn't just because, especially when you look at a mammal, you can see suffering and you can see pain and you can see happiness and joy. So what I really think is this is a sign that the government knows which direction to go in. It knows yeah. that the, the answer is not to have less animal protection is to have more it's not to bring back fox hunting it's to strengthen the protections on our farms and strengthen the protections for pets and and indeed in zoos they mentioned in the in the in the welfare plan so i think we're going to see what what precise proposals come up i mean even on on kind of uh battery chickens and uh farrowing crates for pigs which if people haven't seen i mean they're, they're really quite you know it's a sad sight to see a, a pig in you know, restricted by metal bars, not really able to get close to her young. And, I, you know, whether whether those are phased out is is sort of the, the next battle and there'll be more and more battles. But I think, you know, if you've got the Conservative Party recognising that this is the way to go, I think that's a really, it's a really powerful thing. And it shows that, you know, all this stuff on social media about, you know, wonderful pictures of animals or people t- talking about their dogs, it goes somewhere. It means something. You know, we ca- we you know we we are changing. We're getting better. And my only hurry or or fear is that you know, can we do it fast enough? You know, can we do it before we create you know more intensive farms? Before we uh, cut down more forests? Because yeah, time is ticking on the on those things. Time is ticking, and we're surrounded by technology, and that's something you also bring up in the book artificially engineering meat we're already artificially engineering crops you know which is perhaps a bit of a downside to veganism you know because GMO crops you know are known to create gluten intolerances and all these other things you know so nothing's perfect right Henry but you know I mean, it's radical but do you think just turning off the Google servers might do the trick? 
<laughs> yeah, it's you know what um, I, I often have that feeling at home. Uh, certainly, um, <laughs> I think. Um, uh, I mean, I don't feel the 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 book doesn't come down really on on pros and cons of that. I think the reality is we are changing the world. You know, our presence here changes it in lots of ways. And you know, if you think about the way you know our behaviour in cities shapes the behaviour of foxes or, or, or whatever it might be. And we bring animals into contact that would never be in contact with each other, you know, whether it's, you know, invasive species in, in New Zealand, but plenty more. And climate change is, is changing the conditions for lots of animals, forcing them to migrate, etc. So I, I think the, you know, the, so the, the argument in favour of uh, GMOs or, or is generally that, well, we're, we're, we're playing God in one way, we might as well play it in another way. And also, especially if we can get things more efficient if we can you know engineer pigs so they're more resistant to disease then we'll, we'll need fewer pigs because fewer will die in the process or we can engineer salmon so that it's faster growing then we'll we'll need fewer salmon um in farms um and i think the you know the alternative point of view is look we've got a, just this relentlessness this kind of um desire to transform everything actually what we need to do is is just restrain ourselves a bit and just realize that we are part of something which is bigger than us, which is the natural world. And if we don't, if we keep pushing at the limits, well, there's no guarantee that this, I think as Attenborough calls it, this perfect planet will continue to be perfect. I mean, we're, we're already pushing the, the climate pretty much to the limits. So, I, I mean, I, I, I think that regardless of what happens with certain, you know, with certain developments on GMO, I think a, a, a sort of ethic of restraint is really helpful. And I, I, I think that, you know, before you talk about being able to bring back woolly mammoths or whatever other animals, well, let's just think about trying to save some of the wild spaces which are being destroyed on a daily basis now. And, and let's think about whether we can curb some of our desires. And actually lockdown has been, a, in some ways, a brilliant experience in in rethinking what's really important to us. And I think people would say that friends and family are really important to us, but, you know, is buying loads more stuff that has to be dug out of the ground and then thrown away into landfill, is that is that really what's important to us? Um, probably not. No, I agree. And I, I do hope, you know, some values have changed because it's a horrible thought that we may not have polar bears in the wild um, very soon. And this book, I just urge everyone to read it. As you say in your book, if you're already reading this book, you probably think experimenting on monkeys isn't a very good idea. You know, so if that's what you think while you're listening, I urge you to get the book. So where can people get the book, Henry? And remind us of what it's called. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, and I appreciate it. It's, it's called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. And I'm Henry Mance. And the book is, you know, is is everywhere from Amazon to Waterstones to Blackwells and, and bookshop.org. And, you know, I'd love people to pick it up. I'd love to hear what they, they think of it. I sort of, I try and be clear that I don't have all the answers, but I've, I've been on a, a, you know, a journey trying to think of how my kids will experience animals. And I think I've come to some ways which suddenly feel to me like, they, they, you know, ways of living which suit my my just fun, fundamental love for animals and, and appreciation of them being in this world. So there you go. That's everybody's Christmas present sorted out. Um, thank you again, Henry. Great. Thank you so much. Hey, Mr. Binks, that's our show. What did you think? Yes, I think it is important for all humans to consider being vegan. What's that? Yes, you're right. It's time for Woof of the Week. As humans, we don't really need to eat meat, but our dogs do. So if you really care about your dog and the planet, maybe it's time to make a sacrifice. 
Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. We're on all of them. Thanks to Henry Mance for joining us today. All the links to him and where you can get the amazing book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, they're all in the show notes. Thanks to my producer, Mike Hansen, and Pod People Productions for all their amazing music and editing as ever. You can find out more about them at Pod People UK. And for me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs, or check out my website, annaweb.co.uk. We'll be back in your feed next week, but why not subscribe for free now? Then you'll never miss another show. Bye for now. Bye.